Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. My name is Jillian. And this episode is called Disaster as a Disease, Understanding Social Determinants of Health in EM. In this special Emergency Preparedness Week episode, we'll be taking a look at what emergency managers can learn from the field of public health and how understanding the social determinants of health contributes to our understanding of social vulnerability. To this end, we'll be speaking with Dr. Rochelle Schindler and Dr. Francesco Rizzuti, who are both medical officers of health, and we'll be hearing their stories of resilience and vulnerability during the COVID-19 response. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. So why is this important? Why is it important for emergency managers to know about social determinants of health? Well, I think it's intrinsic that emergency management is multidisciplinary. There's multiple ways to view disaster, whether that's through the engineering school or economics or the sociological model. But the public health view offers us a really unique vantage point where we actually think about disaster as a disease. And from a public health perspective, it's important to understand that what makes populations sick or society sick is different than what makes an individual sick. Just to preface the interview, if you haven't heard of the social determinants of health, this is a concept which is really core to public health training in any uh, kind of public health oriented discipline. And in Canada, there's been 12 key social determinants of health that have been described. And, and those are accepted by Health Canada and Public Health Agency of Canada. So those include things like income and social status, employment, working conditions, education, literacy, childhood experiences, gender, you get the idea. So with all of that said, on to the interview. Dr. Schindler and Rizzuti, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast. We are here today to talk about the social determinants of health and how they might connect well to emergency management practices. I'm wondering, though, if you could introduce yourselves a little bit first. Sure. I'm Rochelle Schindler. I'm a medical officer of health uh, in Calgary Zone for Alberta Health Services, and I have been on the front lines of response for the COVID-19 pandemic since January of 2020. Franco Rizzuti, like Dr. Schindler, the last two years have been dedicated almost entirely to COVID. And this podcast is excellently timed as well with some of the work I've recently been doing as we think about supporting our uh, Ukraine evacuees and uh, what's happening overseas. So delighted to be here. I'm wondering if you could start us off just by telling us what the social determinants of health are. What is this concept? Where did it come from? Why is it important? Sure. You know, often when we think about medicine, we think about what's the disease right in front of us? What's the patient? What's their condition? How do we treat it? And in public health, kind of the underpinning thinking and understanding is that a lot of elements in one social environment that define who they are, are critical in really uh, mapping out what their health journey is going to be. We're talking about things like gender, age, talking about education, income status, thinking about other vulnerable populations. And so thinking about how these factors, which, you know, day to day are not explicitly health, contribute to one's health journey. Yeah. And I'll jump in that, like, when we're talking about vulnerabilities in the context of social determinants of health, we're not saying that there is something inherent in anyone that has any of these factors that says, you know, because you are X um, or you have this experience X, you will go on to have Y or you're more at risk of 
of why. Um, really, the reason why it's called the social determinants is because this exists in the social, cultural, structural milieu um, that gives people either advantages or disadvantages within that structure. Some things are almost exclusively personal, like, you know, you can't really change your country of origin or your ethnicity. You can make decisions very personally about your health practices, but often these things bridge to the systemic pieces, the experience of gender. Gender is a very personal experience and yet also is constantly influenced by the culture around you, um, the way people perceive your gender, the way people experience that identity really results in your overall picture um, that is going to influence your health. And um, yeah, I think that's really the core of it, that this isn't a biological predisposition. It's something that's constructed and that makes it modifiable and changeable. You know, in emergency management, we often talk about vulnerable populations. I don't really know what that actually means, but is is this the same thing as are the social determinants of health used to group people into different vulnerabilities? It's a great question, Grayson. And, you know, often people will think about, you know, a vulnerable population as one who is either at a higher risk or maybe, you know, they're marginalized and they have a disadvantage. And, you know, that's usually the traditional thinking. And I would encourage us to move past that. And really, as we think about uh, emergency disaster management, to think more about, you know, health equity, right? So when we're thinking about equities, we're thinking about what's fair, what's just, and as Rochelle said, a lot of these elements, you know, we can't change them, but thinking about how do we, when we're building plans, building up programs, how do we make sure we're not further marginalizing those who, you know, don't fit that ideal um, citizen or that model individual that we might use in building our plan. So it's really thinking about health equity and how do we not further add injury to harm as we're building these plans out. Prevention of harm to people is really like primary goal of emergency management. You have to consider that it's not just inherent that some people are going to do well and some people are not going to do so well after an emergency um, and tailoring your supports to ensure that you support everybody. Um, but that includes the people who are the most uh, likely to um, have difficulties is really important. If we ignore this, like Franco was saying, we're making assumptions about the resources and skills that people are going to have at their disposal and the needs that they have, and then we're going to end up missing the needs of a whole bunch of people. In addition to the baseline inequities that they're going to have coming into that situation, we're then going to make that situation even worse for them. And one of the things that really the pandemic has made clear is that we often don't know what we don't know. You don't typically have people coming forward and saying, you know, um, you need to make sure that you consider me and my needs in this situation. Um, you know, you're the service provider and, and they're in acute distress typically when, when you're interacting with them in an emergency situation. Um, so often they can't verbalize them in that context. They don't feel safe. They're worried about denial of service if they bring up issues. Um, you know, even thinking about things like uh, disability to say like, okay, it's really great. You've just given me all these printed materials, but I am visually impaired. What do you have for me? If you haven't done the planning in the background before all of that, you know, to be able to identify those individuals, be, make sure that there's options for people with visual impairment, you're going to make that person feel really uncomfortable, potentially unwelcome, and you, they end up disengaging from, you know, you could have planned the best service possible for them. 
if they're not feeling welcome, they're gone and you don't even get to hear the feedback of I felt unsafe. I really like this lens of equity and social construction. I think that matches really well with emergency management. Disasters are defined in Canada as essentially a social phenomenon. So that's social construction lens. And if you're doing emergency management right, you should be focusing on making services equitable and focusing on uh, vulnerabilities and strengths. So maybe to understand this a little bit more, could you give us some examples of the social determinants of health either being a barrier or a strength? Sure, I'll start. Um, And again, there's a million different examples we can pull from, but I think one that many will probably at least have heard about in the media is when we're thinking about our larger outbreaks we had. So we're thinking warehouses, maybe meat production facilities, and some of the big challenges there, right, that that may have bubbled up to the surface were lots of spread happening, maybe in the workplace, maybe at home. But when we unpacked it and really got to the root causes, some of the challenges were income. So even though we had CERB in place, well, there was the delay in getting that funding and two weeks without pay might have meant they couldn't make rent or they couldn't provide food. So income continuity was an issue. We had lots of situations where housing was a challenge. So we had multi-generational homes. We had multiple families in a home. So thinking about, you know, maybe some of our language that we had around how to isolate just didn't work. So we needed to be a bit creative there. As Dr. Schindler mentioned, Communication was a big challenge there. We could have all these documents going out and we realized quickly that first off, we need a translation into not just French, but into, you know, a dozen other international languages. And we also needed to simplify our language. We couldn't be using medical jargon. We couldn't be using, you know, technocrat uh, talk. We needed to really simplify it to what would someone who has, you know, foundational English Um, be able to comprehend and understand. And so it was things like this that really changed how we approached our response. And, you know, from the outlooker in, it might just look like, oh, well, here's a challenge. Maybe it's a workplace, maybe it's a culture piece, but you unpacked that and really saw how these social determinants that most folks could not change. It was who they are. It was part of their social construct. Um, we needed to understand that and support these in order for us to make meaningful change. And and I feel like a lot of what I did for the first couple of months of the pandemic was really just converting things into plain language, um, acknowledging that even individuals who had English as their first language may not have had the health literacy uh, to understand, you know, recognizing that perhaps they spoke a very unusual dialect and, you know, we're going to have to do some uh, translation themselves. Uh, especially for potentially other family members to go, okay, but we're using the words novel coronavirus. Like, how does that translate? Like, book coronavirus, like, it it still means nothing. Um, And so, like, really, like, questioning some of these underlying assumptions in language, and then also recommendations. Um, You know, a lot of sort of boilerplate communications is talk to your family doctor. Um, How many times did we hear about drive to the nearest assessment center? And it's like, okay, do you have a family doctor? Do you feel comfortable talking with your family doctor about this issue? Is your family doctor accessible to you at this time? Do you have a vehicle? Like all of these things assume sort of this ideal situation and and didn't reflect really the reality of what we were seeing. I really like that point is a lot of our plans, whether it is healthcare or 
emergency management seem to be targeted at this quote unquote ideal citizen that doesn't necessarily exist in in the real world uh, and certainly isn't every citizen that we have to serve. Is it just about barriers to access or are there some more underlying barriers or, or issues that make the social determinants of health important? I think the other thing that's really important to remember is that the social determinants aren't an inherent like check mark, you're good, X in red, you're bad. Um, a lot of um, the default assumptions about what a person might experience is really like hyper-individualistic in Canada. One of the great strengths that we found, uh, especially in those early outbreak responses, was the level of support within the community. If someone was isolating the entire community um, of this individual, you know, who was under-resourced and perhaps, you know, here on a temporary work visa and so not eligible for a lot of supports, their community would come together and make sure that they had everything that they needed. Um, and then as things progressed, you know, being able to formalize those supports and making sure that people were having things tailored to them was actually a huge strength um, and uncovered a lot of needs that we actually, you know, had not considered in any plan. One of the major things that, um, and just because of the, we're thinking of, of the meat plants right now, I'm thinking of um, the ethnocultural communities of Calgary and, and the way that um, there was response there. One of the major things that arose was actually concerns about domestic violence related to financial insecurity, related to isolation and not being able to get away from a partner. And, you know, that that definitely was not in any of our plans of like, hey, we need to have a really solid domestic violence response. And yet, you know, it was really those ethno-cultural communities that started uncovering that trend first um, and allowing that response early, much earlier than the rest of the community that didn't have that level of community involvement. I think one thing we really saw was fear and stigma became a critical element. And so us supporting uh, those with these lived experiences. And so for example, fear of losing their job, fear of isolation from the community they built. And so it was only once we started to connect with these ethnocultural groups and build that wraparound support that we were able to break down some of these, you know, maybe stereotypes that they had, maybe these preconceived ideas. Um, just experiences they've had, right? Conversations at the water cooler kind of talk beforehand that we were able to break down and say, you know, we can relieve some of the fear. How do we support you? And how do you make sure you're safe? One thing that always stood up to me was carpooling. Carpooling was a very common piece, you know, and it was a bit of a cognitive disconnect for us because we talk about, you know, transit and transportation strategies and let's try to carpool, let's try to get people using active transport or public transport. And then we needed to quickly pivot to say, okay, yes, these are things we talk about. Yes, we understand there's six of you who need to get from your house to the office or the, the shop, but how can we support that? How can we make it safe? And, you know, not making folks feel like they had to out themselves to say, oh, I was exposed, um, or if they're wearing a mask to feel stigmatized. So it was a lot of these slowly uh, just changing that understanding, making sure folks felt safe. Rather than removing barriers, although that was an important part of it, it was really more about creating that supportive environment that people needed to be empowered themselves. You spoke to some of the gaps in current plans, what can be done pre-disaster to better understand what the impacts will be and plan for them? Yeah, I don't think we have all the answers, but I think our experience has definitely taught us some things to think about. Um, we definitely have had some lessons learned in my mind around the needs of unique populations. So our immigrant 
uh, English second language populations definitely have different needs. Those with no fixed address definitely have different needs. And so thinking about do we have strategies for shelter for those you know who have unstable housing? Do we have strategies for those in rural populations where they have different access barriers? So it's thinking about, you know, not just, a, okay, what's our, our model that's going to work for 90%, but then it's thinking about, okay, maybe that 10% who has different needs. How do we have a targeted approach to support them and recognizing that they're tough situations, finite budget and resources. So it's all kind of within that. But I think it really is starting to apply a bit of an equity tool and equity lens. Yeah. And I think that recognizing that people also don't exist within silos, you know, ha- have multiple facets of their personality and their life and their culture that are that are important to the way uh, that they will present in an emergency. Um, and to say, yeah, we're, we're already here. We know that you're going to have these particular needs and this is ready to go. Like, that's not going to happen in the emergency. And you're not going to make sure that those needs are met by cobbling something together going, oh no, I didn't realize we'd have a visually impaired here last minute. You know, it really starts with community engagement very, very early on and identifying and and reviewing the plans. And even just the way that you think about policy and language, you know, if someone's presenting, again, I'm using an evacuation center because it's sort of the most dramatic response. But if you're presenting and saying, okay, who's in your family and your options on the forum are male, female, and those are your gender options, you know, that's immediately going to be othering for someone who's non-binary or who's someone whose legal um, identity documents don't actually match um, their true identity. Often the people planning are not people who have these experiences. And so absolutely people should read the literature. Um, Absolutely people should do everything they can to, you know, educate themselves before they have a conversation. But you also can't just, you know, read the literature and you're like, okay, autistic people um, react poorly to loud noises. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a quiet space and we're going to put all the autistic people there. It's like, okay, if you actually talked with someone from the autistic community, um, it'd be like, okay, this is an issue for some people, but like having sensory friendly spaces is something that's useful for a lot of different people. And you shouldn't just assume, you know, letting people identify their own needs and making sure those options are available for them is really the core of it. Instead of going, I've got a peg on you. I know what you need. Here you go. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think one thing to dovetail to this, right, is it's it's really the, how critical these partnerships are in normal time. Knowing who you can rely on, who you can t- contact, having their Rolodex available so that in a moment your plans have enough adaptability and flexibility that you're able to pick up a phone and phone, you know, the Autism Society of wherever you are and say, hey, we're experiencing this, do you have thoughts? How do we engage partners? And I think that's sometimes tough to do in the moment. Um, it was definitely hard when we were trying to build that plane and fly it um, in the middle of the pandemic. So I think that was one of the big lesson learns is just having that strong community uh, list of partners and stakeholders and often outside of health. You know, we'll sometimes just think about here's our silo, here's what we're doing. But a lot of these are, you know, community services, these ethnocultural groups, other groups um, that we might not think about. So it's just you know, having our ear to the ground and having that uh, that strong group of partners and stakeholders. And once you're there, being willing to be uncomfortable and say, you know what, you're right. We're here to listen and try and meet those needs because 
you know, as we've learned, there's no way you can possibly anticipate every need um, or, you know, accommodate every single thing, um, especially with, you know, limited budgets and, and time and energy and all these things. But if you have those connections and you are willing to hear what is often blunt and slightly distressing feedback, you're going to be better for it. And I know that's especially hard when you're in the middle of responding. I really like what I'm hearing. And, and I think this idea of health equity uh, can probably be translated a little bit into disasters as uh, building resilience and community resilience. But this is a really long road. Is there anything that can be done kind of in the during if we haven't addressed all of the uh, the different social determinants of health beforehand? Addressing these problems, not from a here is problem, therefore solution uh, framework, which I know is really easy to get into, um, but instead go, here is the problem and who has the solution? Um, because people who have lived experiences with these things almost certainly have had experiences where they know what the solution is or they can tell you. And so that's where having those pre-existing partnerships is really critical um, and, and having that um, genuine curiosity when the situation evolves um, to say, okay, what, what do we do here? What are the needs? Um, instead of entirely jumping to the, the very hierarchical structure um, that we have in a response. And as well, I think you know, it's going to be separating a little bit of these foundational social determinants that of health that we we can't address in a disaster in an emergency. We don't have the capacity. So it's really figuring out what's that immediate, you know, challenge that we're there and working with the community. I think the other thing we learned is it is okay to have imperfect solutions. It might be a solution that is only going to work for today. And, you know, that's okay. It's addressing the crisis now and then we buy ourselves 24 hours to, you know, build the capacity with the community and retool and rejig. And so I think it's really having that adaptability uh, in the plan and recognizing that also maybe what worked in wave one of the pandemic um, when we had this is no longer going to work and it's okay to get frustrated, um, but it's having uh, that community to go back to and talk to and say, okay, how do we retool? How do we uh, recalibrate the situation? What are the new needs? And then how do we go forward? It's interesting, Dr. Shangeli, you mentioned uh, that the that sort of hierarchical problem and then imposed solution might even be a little bit uh, distressing or it might even cause some some problems. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, often when we're responding, we start from policy um, instead of people. And so... Um, one of the things that has evolved out of the pandemic was really um, support for people um, who are experiencing housing insecurity, homelessness, um, unstable housing, and making sure that those needs are met. Um, going into the pandemic, there was a lot of barriers to access to care for those individuals. Um, and uh, especially around um, supporting potentially substance use withdrawal, um, I don't want to inherently equate those two things, um, but there's a there's a high prevalence and so important part of addressing um, needs of that population. You know, very quickly, people were developing clinical practice guidelines. Um, they called it pandemic prescribing to say that, okay, you know, while someone's isolating, if they've been on this substance, 
Um, how do we make sure that they're not suffering during isolation and, and going through withdrawal unsupported? And so, you know, have this active disincentive to isolating and, and protecting the health of the community. You know, uh, early on, one of the things that we talked a lot about was, um, you know, methamphetamine use. And one of the solutions that we had as providers was like, okay, well, methamphetamine is not a prescription drug, um, but there are several like similar medications that we could prescribe and kind of try and titer to, to meet the needs of folks um, while they're in isolation. And the clients very quickly said, no, this isn't working for us. And it would have been really easy to say like, well, this is what we've got. And instead tried really hard to work with them and say, okay, well, how could we meet these needs and, um, and developed a lot of like flexible ways to work with the clients to make sure that, you know, when they were expressing that need that they were heard. And that built a lot of, um, you know, rapport with the community to say like, okay, you know, we're going to try and work with you. And if there is a problem, how can we find a solution together? Because the problem is external to the person. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it really undermined a lot of the way we traditionally think about these things. And, um, but it has been really, really successful. Um, you know, we've had hundreds of people that we have been able to transition from the isolation hotels here in Calgary directly to housing um, that were previously homeless. You know, and it's just kind of like evolved over time based on those client needs, uh, starting from this very rules-based you know, you must do X and then Y will happen um, structure to something that is helping from like a COVID pandemic perspective, but then also helping in so many other ways and actually addressing some of these social determinants. And what I'll add is, you know, a slightly different example, but one thing we saw early on in the pandemic and then it evolved as we moved to vaccination is, you know, barriers in thinking about how the hierarchical structure doesn't work when we're trying to have that outreach. So, for example, with testing, we were able to quickly mobilize on-site testing. And early on, we realized, you know, the first day we had 10, 15% uptake and we scratched our head and we realized that our hierarchical, oh, here's all the data we need to collect, all the demographics was a tremendous barrier. And so it was retooling of how do we create a minimal require data set to allow someone to very quickly get swabbed and tested and then be able to move on. And then, you know, this evolves same sort of thing with vaccinations of, okay, how do we bring the vaccinations to the individual? Dramatic change in how we design immunization programs and same sorts of things of how do we reduce the data set so that we're adapting to their needs instead of imposing our traditional structure and policies uh, to, to meet the needs. So it was really that reframing and thinking about, you know, what are their needs and how do we, how do we adapt and bend to them? What's next? What's the next step to, to build a more resilient community? So I think as we're, you know, transitioning out of the pandemic, we have now, you know, we're experiencing a, a different public health threat and need, and that's this global humanitarian crisis. And so in some ways, this is going to test our resolve and, you know, get us to think again. But I, I, I do hope that some of the lessons we've learned through the pandemic will help us adapt. And so early days still, but what we're already starting to do is take the approach of, okay, not just what did we do the last time we had refugees coming to Canada and support them, but now kind of take a step back and look at, okay, what are the unique health needs of these individuals coming from Ukraine? What are 
um, you know, their health status indicators and, and use that to inform. But I think more importantly, we've already started to reach out to the communities. And we recognize that there are probably already folks here or, or folks planning to come here. So talking with them, understanding, you know, what's their living situation? How can we support them? And really take a kind of bottom of the intervention ladder up approach of let's engage them, let's talk to them, let's provide information and not just go down with the enforcement you know, hammer at the onset of, oh, your housing requirement doesn't meet our standards. And thus, you know, we need to move. It's going to be, okay, how do we support you to get things to where they need to be? So we're starting, I think in terms of next steps, it is, you know, hopefully after we all take some well-deserved time to, you know, rebalance to heal, because I think that's important. It's going to be us thinking about, okay, how do we start codifying this into, you know, a simple to use kind of way to apply um, it, you know, either in planning or in the middle of the response. So it's it's next steps. Um, we're still in our infancy there, but I think it's going to be capturing what we've done and not losing uh, the tremendous work uh, that we've experienced over the last two years. Yeah, the the partnerships that we've built have been truly spectacular to see like what what we're capable of as a community in this like true partnership and collaboration. And so I like it's incredibly important to me that we continue that. I do know that right now, you know, disaster response is at the front of everyone's minds. And so there's a lot of attention being paid to it. But I also know that that will fade and that will change. And so um, thinking about ways to strategically push back when there was pressure to make this cheaper, easier. Um, you know, people start talking about economies of scale again, um, and while still keeping the spirit of this. I, I think that's really one thing that's going to be really important to me. And, and yeah, if, if we have something more formal developed that we can point to, I think will also really help that. But I think also there's the piece of being willing to flexibly see outside your normal frame of vision, um, to not being willing to put yourself in someone else's shoes because that never works, um, but to see expertise as a really broad and flexible term and take people's expertise at that face value, that they are truly experts in their experiences um, and that we are the ones that can learn from them. We are experts in process, not in that experience. And so that's where the real collaboration can come in. And I think one last, you know, piece to add that we've been, we've really recognized is that a disaster pandemic response allows us to kind of break the mold of traditional operating silos and operating process. And so, as Rochelle said, it's going to be resisting that very strong desire to just go back to the old model. And there are a lot of silos that have appropriately now been broken. I think the best one that comes to mind is the closer partnership we have with primary care. Yeah, absolutely. Because ultimately, our jobs are easier <laughs> this way. Where can we go to find out more? Well, um, I would point people to a couple of different resources. Um, if you want some primers on social determinants and, and how to act on them, uh, the Canadian Public Health Association has lots of great resources on their website. That's cpha.ca. I would also recommend the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada's report for 2020, as well as the one from 2021. Uh, the 2021 is probably the most interesting from risk to resilience and equity approach to COVID-19 um, and goes through a lot of these topics that are um, deeply applicable to all kinds of disaster responses, not just COVID. 
if you're interested in learning about uh, the experiences of people with insecure housing or experiencing homelessness, um, homelessnesshub.ca is also a great resource and, and talks a lot about social determinants and how people end up in those circumstances. Dr. Schindler, Dr. Zudi, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast and thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that was a great interview. Absolutely. I could talk about social determinants of health all day. <laughs> for me, one of the things that, you know, is important to, to kind of get your head around is that these social determinants, uh, it's not like any one risk factor is going to ensure that you have a certain outcome or a certain health disparity. But when you start looking at trends over time, they become very powerful tools. And they're not meant to put people in boxes or categories, but it's rather to help us understand the interconnections more um, and the intersectionality of how uh, the populations we're looking after experience risk. I think another key takeaway is kind of looking at the social construction of disaster. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, we often talk about building uh, in areas that are prone to hazards. And uh, typically the people that are then living in those areas are, are people who potentially are experiencing what we're discussing, or they're just generally disproportionately impacted due to equity issues. So that's a, definitely another connection that we're making here with emergency management and the social determinants of health. When we were preparing for the episode, we were chatting a little bit about heat waves and how that's such a great case study for, you know, urban heat islands and it tends not to be you know wealthy people that are in those areas or they have air conditioning and it really means that when you're planning for the ideal citizen quote-unquote you're really planning for nobody because the people that are well resourced and super resilient they saw the disaster coming a week ago and you know they're not really uh the people we're worried about it, it, you really have to to put this lens on of trying to focus your your resources at specific uh, populations and that's why the social determinants are, are so helpful it gives you an idea of needs-based planning absolutely there's this other concept of uh, hierarchy not necessarily equaling equity you know sometimes we have a a little bit of a top-down planning model where we uh, think of ourselves as the experts and you know our guests on the on the interview were talking about this and and really there's nobody more expert than the actual person who is experienced this uh, this inequity uh, to tell you about what they need and, and how they need help. So we're the kind of the implementation experts, but they're the, the content experts about what's gonna help them. You know, as I always say in emergency management, one of our biggest challenges is just getting over ourselves. Like a lot of these self-imposed policies and procedures and labels and things that we have um, in a disaster, we, we can really see those as hurtful things. I think a huge takeaway for me in, in this interview is, is the fact that they talked about our service delivery and our service planning and making sure that we're planning for our whole community and, and not just a, a, a subsect. Yeah. At its core, disasters really are fundamentally health issues. And this, this disease model really makes a lot of sense to me in terms of thinking about like an ecological approach to, to a disaster. And, and, you know, just like we talk about upstream and downstream interventions for prevention, as your family doctor, I want to prevent you from having a heart attack. So we're going to start with this primary prevention first, but then when you do have a heart attack, then we're going to go into secondary prevention. And the same logic carries just beautifully through for uh, the disaster model. And, and that's why I think this health 
concept is, is so is so useful. Every you know different lens of disaster, whether you have like the engineering viewpoint or we talked about the economic viewpoint, they all give a bit of the picture, but maybe I'm just biased, so they come from a health background, but I really find that the public health view of disaster makes the most sense and it's most actionable in a practical day-to-day context. Um, one area where I think this really shines is in communications and public education. Um, when we think about who we're communicating to, then our communications become all the more robust because we're thinking about language and accessibility and meeting people where they're at. I, I had a opportunity to do a, a field placement on a First Nations reserve years ago. And from a public health perspective, one of the issues we we're looking at was fire prevention because the fire related death on a reserve is way higher than the, the baseline population nationally. So a very well-intentioned uh, public health intervention was to uh, essentially distribute free fire extinguishers to this, uh, to this one community. On paper, that sounds like, oh, that's a great idea. We're going to give up fire extinguishers. That certainly should reduce the number of house fires. But yet these extinguishers weren't getting used. And it wasn't until uh, somebody you know, took the time to actually meet people where they were and ask them, well, what's the barrier? Why can't you use these fire extinguishers? You've had training and we're giving you free fire extinguishers. And it was because of the uh, extra disease burden of arthritis on the reserve. A lot of that population were having difficulty actually pulling the pin from the extinguisher and the little safety tab that is supposed to keep the pin in the fire extinguisher and prevent it from accidentally discharging was was stuck. So the solution was to give out nail clippers and attach the nail clippers to the fire extinguisher. And then so you could clip the, the little wire and then pull the pin and use the extinguisher. So um, in my head, I always think of this, uh, this analogy of a nail clipper as a, <laughs> as a public health tool. Yeah. <laughs> You never know. Right. You never know it's going to be a public <laughs> health tool. Thinking about the social determinants of health, I think they connect really well to the emergency management pillars. When you think about planning and particularly service planning, there's some prime examples where thinking about social determinants of health and thinking about equity can really benefit you as the emergency manager and downstream can really benefit the public. So um, one example, uh, you know, if we return to the example of evacuations and reception centers, you know, people need to know, do they need identification? And your policies should reflect whether or not people need identification in order to get support services. Um, you know, is your information translated and accessible? Uh, the, the, you know, are your cots, are your mats at an appropriate height for individuals who have different abilities? Um, you know, can everyone sleep on the floor or do other people need different types of mats and services? So just kind of want to reiterate that the social determinant of health approach and the equity approach are not about equality and sameness. They're truly about right-sizing your solutions to, to your population. Another area where I think uh, we really connect to emergency management, and I mentioned this, is communications and public education. Um, One example I want to give is around uh, emergency kits and some of the education we do there. You know, we we ask people to stockpile medications or, 
you have a stock of medications for their emergency kit. And there's some medications that just, you know, pharmacists or policy, it's just not practice to allow people yeah. to have a stock of medications. So there's some people who are going to be left out in that communication uh, around and, and that public ed- education around emergency kits. Another example is asking people to have a stock of food. So people experiencing food insecurity are going to be people that uh, won't be able to kind of quote unquote, meet that need of your public education. And another example is uh, home and rental insurance. Perhaps some of the people who need home and rental insurance the most due to uh, living in kind of risky or more hazardous areas or more hazard prone areas, potentially don't have the economic power to kind of uh, have a home or rental insurance policy. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to our guests, Dr. Schindler and Dr. Rizzuti, for sharing their time and expertise with us on this topic of social determinants of health. Thanks for listening. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Uh, This episode is brought to you in part by the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. We've got a clip from a podcast called That's a Thing, which we will play now. Hello and welcome to That's a Thing, a sometimes belated, already outdated guide to your teens, tweens, and everything under 20. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. Every month we have a conversation across the generation gap about media, pop culture, society, the internet, that kind of thing. Karen is my mom, and she's old. (laughs) I am her daughter, and I am young. Together we are one human being, here to share with you. Sometimes we bring in another human being who is Elizabeth's brother, John, to do a deep dive into memes and stuff like that. Hi. Thank you, John. Uh, We were named the Outstanding Kids and Family Series at the 2020 Canadian Podcast Awards, so we have that going for us. Yes, and we will brag about it until the day the podcast ends, because I am petty. (laughs) You can find That's a Thing in the podcatcher of your choice. That is That's a Thing question mark exclamation point you can also find us at albertapodcastnetwork.com is that everything i think that's it thanks sweetheart bye this podcast was also brought to you in part by the edmonton community foundation who's prepared a clip for your listening pleasure which i will play now hello i'm elizabeth Monkink. i'm andrew paul and we're the hosts of the well-endowed podcast The Well-Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well-Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian. <laughs>